My name's Tammy, and I'm an alcoholic from the low south of Winnipeg. And it is cold here. You need to drink here, you know? <laughs> what a bleeding thought tonight about a warm drink of uh, Canadian whiskey. But, um, anyway, I want to thank the committee for inviting me. Um, I tell you, this, we walked out tonight, and this air just takes your breath. And uh, I'm a little tired from flying all day, so if I'm a babbling idiot up here, Cliff will straighten everything out tomorrow night. So, um, I've got to tell this little story. Um, I'm glad to see that the, the interpreter's here. And one time I spoke, I think I was in Arkansas, and the speaker before me was from California. And they spoke really fast, you know, they talked fast. And so he was just going, going, going. Then when I got up to speak, he was like this. Because of my accent, he looked like he was doing nothing. So don't go to sleep down there on me, okay? <laughs> Thank y'all for having me. It's always a privilege and an honor to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous. To even come to Canada, 35 below, it's a privilege and an honor. Um, I guess I'll start out by telling you my sobriety date is July the 16th, 1991. And for that, I am very grateful. Um, it may not mean a lot to you, but it means a lot to me. Uh, my home group is the Prattville Downtown Group where I'm a member in good standing, and I truly believe in home group. Um, I have a sponsor, and I think that's very cool. I tell you, I love AA, but speaking is probably my least favorite thing to do in alcoholics. I'd rather be setting up chairs or emptying ashtrays or anything than speaking. And I've had some experiences with speaking. Um, I guess the first year, year and a half of my sobriety, I went to the share in a meeting. Um, if they asked me to read how it works, I, I would just shake. And I told the old timer one time, he said, Tammy, you've been sober a year. You need to share and meet me. And I said, well, I'm shy. And he said, girl, he knew me when I was drinking. He said, there's not a shy bone in you. He said, all that's wrong with you is you're full of self and fear. And won't you try working the steps, and maybe God will remove it after that, that you can share your experience, strength, and hope. And so... God's removed enough of it, but I still get very nervous. Um, the first time I ever spoke at AA, I was in an institution, and they took four of us out from that institution, and I, I guess I would have done anything to get out of there. I would have tried to sing a song or whatever. And um, I was a nervous wreck, and we went to this AA group, and we talked to Alabama, and there was a lot of old-timers, and I got up there, and I was shaking, nervous, and I was put my foot up on the shelf at the podium and the whole thing went rolling out. <laughs> it had wheels on it. <laughs> the next time I spoke at an AA meeting and it was in a, I guess I may have had two years sobriety and it was in an old building in Selma, Alabama. The building was about to fall down. And I went to the bathroom to pray and I put my purse on the sink and the whole sink came off the wall. <laughs> So I pushed the thing back up and went and sat down, and a few minutes later, the door popped up and water was coming out everywhere, and I was like, Lord, what happened, you know? And so they had to shut the whole meeting down and clean it up. So I guess you're safe down there. Maybe I won't knock this thing over on your head. 
But anyway, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it was like for me, what happened, and what it's like today. I was born in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, I have one brother. My mom got pregnant when she was real young. And back then, in the 60s, that was the cool thing to do. Um, my father uh, shot food for a living. He had long hair, rode a Harley, sold a little drugs on the side. So I guess you could say right away I didn't come from the leave it to be your family. That's the way it all got started. And I used to really want to know what happened to me. You know, why did I turn out like this? You know, did my mom drop me on my head when I was a baby? What happened? And I, I kind of go with what an old-timer says at my group. And he always says, it really don't matter how the jackass got the ditch. How are you going to get him out? And that's the way I, you know, I kind of go by that philosophy today. Um, she probably did drop me on my head, but uh, I know today that I'm an alcoholic. I don't know why. I don't know if I inherited it, learned it. I don't know. I just know when I drink, I don't act right. And I, I figured that much out. And so that's the way I was brought up. Uh, my dad left when I was young, uh, when I was three years old. I have one brother. And my mom, she raised me and my brother. She did the best that she could. And uh, she worked two jobs and tried to get us out of the projects and in better neighborhoods and did everything she could. But growing up, and I hear a lot of speakers say this, I always felt different. I, I never fit in. I didn't fit in at school. I didn't like school. I didn't fit in with the jobs. I didn't fit in with cool kids. Um, I didn't fit in at church. Uh, I mean, I was raised Catholic, and I never could keep up, you know, sit, kneel, stand, you know, any Catholics in here. And I mean, and I stayed in trouble in church all the time, and and I just never fit. I never fit. And it was like that for me until I was 12 years old and I took my first drink to alcohol. Now, I don't remember a lot about my childhood, but I remember this day. Me and my best friend, we lived in the project. She lived downstairs and I lived upstairs. And we went out and we got drunk on red malt butter. That was a popular thing back then. And I can remember that night as I drank those wine coolers and they went down. It was like a magical potion. And that I had, I had found magic. I finally fit in. I was as pretty as, as funny as. I mean, I would do whatever, dance on the car, whatever you want to do. I heard a speaker say once that there was only two things that ever made a difference in his life. And it was that first drink of alcohol and alcoholics not. And I can stand up here today and tell you that's true for me. Because that day changed my life. You know, they talk about a line that you cross into alcoholism. And I truly believe I crossed it that night. Because from that point on, if I wasn't drinking, I was planning it, I was thinking about it. My whole life started revolving around alcohol. I was only 12 years old, so you know I couldn't drink every day. But I, I got into trouble the very first time I got drunk, and I got in a lot of trouble after that, you know. And every time I got in trouble, I was drinking. And it took AA to help me put that connection, you know. Um, we made it home. We got drunk. Now, remember, I'm 12 years old, and my best friend's 11 years old. And we made it home, and the room was spinning, and I was about to throw up. But I, my mom didn't catch me. Well, she went home and started throwing up. And her mother came in there. Now, she's 11 years old. 
And her mother said, well, honey, have you been eating real candy? And she's like, no. Drinking Kool-Aid? No. So she rushed her to the emergency room. Um, thought she was hemorrhaging, throwing up blood. And the doctor came out laughing and said, there's nothing wrong with this kid, but she's drunk on red wine. So her mother called my mom. And my mom beat me, you know, had to death, put me on restriction for 10 years or whatever, you know. But it really didn't matter what the consequences were because I found magic. I found a solution. I found a solution. So from that point, it just started going downhill. And for me, it went downhill pretty quick. Um, I started doing other things, started smoking cigarettes, skipping school, smoking other stuff, doing other stuff, you know, and a lot. And, and I will mention drugs in my story. And I know sometimes the old timers, you say the word drugs, and they're like, <laughs> But my my deal is, if you were born after 1930 and you hadn't smoked pot, I mean, where were you? You know, I mean, it, it was just kind of all part of it, you know. And um, but I'm a believer in the traditions, and, and I'm sure not going to stand up here and tell you a, a drug story. But I'll kind of sum up my whole drug story like this. My uncles were wino. My uncle Clarence was a wino like we view alcoholic. He wore the trench coat, um, drank his wine in a paper bag, stayed under, lived under the bridge, got a check the first of the month, he'd come home, we'd rob him, he'd go back under the bridge. <laughs> so one night I'd been out all night drunk, and I went in there, I said, Clarence, I said, give me a drink of that wine. I said, I'm sick of the dog. And I took a big old drink of that wine, and it was a wild Irish rose. Y'all ever drink that? Yeah, I see some here. So I took a big old drink of that wine, and I spit it out, and I looked at Clarence, and I said, Clarence, you ain't nothing but a wine, though. And that man looked back at me with all the disgust you can imagine. And he said, well, at least I'm not a any of You'll do anything thing. Now, now Clarence summed me up that night, because that's what I was. I was an Enio. I would drink Crown Royal or Mad Dog 2020. Um, we could be in a bar, and you could hand me a handful of pills, and I would take them. It could be X-Lax or anything, you know. I would drink it, smoke it, shoot it, snort it. It didn't matter. So Clarence summed me up. That's what I was. I was an Enio. I uh, started going in and out of juvenile hall. Uh, by the time I was 15, you know, and my mom, she would come pick me up out of that uh, juvenile detention center. And I can remember us driving back, and she'd look at me and say, where did I go wrong? And I'd say, I don't know, but she went wrong somewhere, you know. And But the baffling part about this illness that we have is that I had no more idea of what was really going on with you. By the time I was 15, I moved out of her house, quit school in the eighth grade. Um, and my knight in shining armor came in. And he robbed drugstores for a living. And man, <laughs> life really meant something then. And we just gallivanted around the world, you know. And, you know, the chances are when you're living like that, you're going to get caught. And he did. He got called in Mississippi uh, and got a 40-year sentence uh, for drugstore robbery. And uh, at this time, I was 
17 years old. And I, at that time, I was a daily drinker. And every day when I woke up, it was, where am I going to get that next drink? And whatever it took to get it, that's what I did. And a lot of them things I'm not proud of. So when these baby blues opened, it was, who am I going to rob, con, shoot, steal, manipulate, whatever it took to get that next drink. Um, I heard a speaker, Wino Joe, he said one time, uh, every morning when he woke up and threw his arm off the bed, if it was carpet, it was going to be a good day. And if it was concrete, it was going to be a bad day, you know. And I can tell you at this young age, that's what my life had already drummed up to be. So, you know, I'm doing the things that you do, living on the streets. And uh, chances are you're going to get caught by this. Uh, when I was 18 years old, I got my first felony in the big people's court. And I can remember standing in front of that judge, and he gave me a 10-year sentence and suspended it. gave me five years probation. And he told me some things that were beyond my comprehension, like get a job. <laughs> go to work, you know, go to school, do something. And, uh, you know, like any good alcoholic, I left there that day, and I needed a drink. And uh, I don't know about you, but I didn't do probation well drinking and drugging. I just, it, you know, it didn't work out, and I never reported. And, uh, but during this time, this keen alcoholic mind started trying to figure out what the problem was. And I said, okay, I know what the problem is. My problem is Montgomery, Alabama. And there is more police there than there are people. And I... Uh, and they're always picking on me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to move to Texas. I'm going to move to Dallas, start over. And I could see it was like this beautiful vision in my head. A ranch, a cowboy, horses, sipping good whiskey. It was beautiful. So I hitchhiked to Texas, which would be your first clue. It wasn't going to be that great. And I got to Texas, and I took a drink. And I was just like a Tasmanian devil in Texas running around doing the same thing, um, robbing, conning, stealing, manipulating, whatever it took to get that new straight. I stayed on a couple years on the run, and um, you get tired when you're on the run. And, uh, and so I did what most good alcoholics would do. I called my mother and wanted to come back to Alabama and face the music. And, uh, and I did. Uh, I went back in front of that judge, and I was 21 years old. And uh, he sentenced me to that 10 years in the penitentiary that he had suspended. And uh, I can remember laying in that county jail, and I was scared. I mean, the only thing I knew about prison is what I had seen on TV. You know? I said, I'm going to go up there, and they're going to slap me down and take all my stuff. You know, all my stuff. Y'all know those movies we see on TV. And I was scared to death, you know. And I, and I said that jailhouse prayer that so many of us have said. I said they need to just paint it on the ceiling and then, God, if you'll just get me out of this one, I promise I'll never drink again. And you know, the doors didn't slam open. And I said, see, there's no God. And if there is a God, I've been dealt pretty bad. You know, and that, that's, that was my mindset. And so, they took us up to that prison and, you know, the big book talks about that pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization that us alcoholics experience over and over again. 
And this was just one of those times, and I could stand up here tonight and just like a lot of you and tell you for three or four hours many experiences about that pitiful incomprehensible demoralization. You know, sleeping in abandoned cars, panhandling, abandoned houses, waking up places I didn't know where I was, you know, on and on and on. And this was one more time that day they took us to that prison and they took us in the back gate. And they stripped me down, and they sprayed me like an animal. And for the next two years, that's exactly how I lived, just like an animal. Because that's how you live in that. But you know, after a few days, that old ego, or whatever it is, I call it that keen alcoholic mind, started trying to figure it out. And I said, I know what the problem is. When I get out of here, I am through with them drugs. Look what they've done to me. And it is drinking only. <laughs> and I might smoke a little weed, because, you know, weed is God's herb. And y'all know, we have said that so many times. The baffling part about it is, I believed it with all my heart. I believed when I got out that I would be able to just drink, you know, and not get in trouble. You know, the book talks about it, that delusion. And I lived in that delusion that somehow, someday, I would be able to drink like other people. I stayed up there about two years. I went to just a few AA meetings in the prison because um, they had coffee and donuts. Um, the one thing I remember about the AA meeting, there was this little lady that brought the meeting in. Her name was Miss Margaret. And she never missed a week. She came every week. She wore red lipstick all over her face. And she'd always kiss you on the cheek, go, hey, sugar. <laughs> and uh, I went up to her one day, and I said, do they pay you to come up to this place? And she said, oh, no, honey, I come up here for free and for fun, because all you ladies are doing my time for me. And that's the only thing I remember about the AA meetings, is this lady being there every week. Um, they let me out after a couple years, and, you know, I had this vision. The delusion that I was in, that I was going to be able to drink like other people, and it was like this little cartoon picture in my head. Me sipping, you know, good whiskey, smoking a little good weed every now and then. You know, White House, picket fence, cars, kids, dogs, you name it. It was beautiful in my head. So they let me out of prison. I stopped. My mother picked me up at the front gate of the prison. I stopped at the very first convenience store about a half a mile down from the prison. He got me a six-pack of beer, and I drank that first Budweiser, and it was just like a tad maybe better. Back on, I was back at EO doing anything, um, you know, out of control. The hardest thing for me ever to admit to myself was I was an alcoholic. You know, my Uncle Clarence is an alcoholic. I don't have on a trench coat. And I don't know why it was so hard for me to admit, because this is how I drank. When I was locked up, I was constantly, that, that's what kept my alcoholic mind going, is we would constantly make, what we called it julep, homemade wine. And boy, you talking about some rough stuff. We would make it out of anything we could find, yeast, raisins, fruit cocktails, just anything that had big clumps in it, you know. But it'd get you drunk if you could, your stomach could handle it. And we'd, we'd have it ferment in the locker boxes there in the prison. And sometimes in the middle of the night, you'd hear, boom, 
to blow up them locker boxes. Man, he'd be sick like And when I wasn't locked up, this is the way I drank. I drank at a place that never closed. It was my favorite bar. It was uh, never closed seven days, 24 hours a day. It's called the Honey for the Bear. Now, just vision it. You can just kind of get a picture of it in your mind. And it was good for people like me that drank like me because you could just stay down there, drink for days, you know, and when you just couldn't hold your eyes open anymore, you could go get in a booth and pass out and come to and be right back up there by me and drink, baby. You know, it was sick. And that's the way I drank. I'd stay down there three or four days and wouldn't even leave. And since I've been sober, I watched this movie, Barclay, and it made me sick because that's exactly how I was. I'd sit in that bar like a vulture, just waiting for somebody like Cliff to come in with some money, you know? Just buy me a drink, baby, you know? And just, what a nightmare, what a nightmare. But that's the way I drank. So I stayed out for a short time, just running like a Tasmanian devil, until they locked me up again. I had a new case. Uh, somewhere in this alcoholic mind, I, I believed I was a doctor, and I was writing my own prescriptions. <laughs> And our great state of Alabama does not take too kindly to us writing our own prescriptions. And so I had all these new charges and went back in front of this judge that uh, violated my parole. Um, and he sentenced me to another 10-year sentence running wild with the sentence I had. And I went back to that prison for 20 years. And I was sitting in that infirmary thinking... <laughs> What went wrong with the program, you know, the just drinking, smoking the little weed, White House, picket fence program? And this keen alcoholic mind started figuring it out. And I said, I know what it is. I shouldn't have never drank that hard with her. I'd get crazy on you. And this time, when I get out, it is beer only. <laughs> I ain't going to smoke no weed. I'm not going to do anything. Just a few beers every now and then. And, you know, it sounds so funny saying it now, but at that time, I believed it with everything in me. You could have came up there with your big book and you could have said, but Danny, if you take one drink, da 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 But with everything in me, I believed. I lived in that delusion this book talks about, that somehow, someday, I'd be able to drink like normal people. So I stayed in the prison this time for a couple more years. Uh, and that if you're wondering about our state in Alabama, there's no truth in sentencing. So if you ever want to break the law, do not come to Alabama because they'll give you 40 or 50 years and you'll do two years and be on parole, 48. You know, and, and that's tough on the alcoholic, buddy. That is tough. So I stayed up there for two years and I got out on parole again. And uh, my mom picked me up. We started down that same highway, stopped at the very same story. The beer only. Went in, got me a six-pack of Budweiser. Drank that first beer. Like it had made it. Back on everything. Back at anything. Doing it all. Until they locked me up again. Now you guys are sitting there now like, good Lord, how many times are we going to prison? You think you're tired of going to prison? I was tired of going to prison. <laughs> They locked me up again, and I went back to Tuttle Prison for my third trip, and uh, luckily I didn't have a new charge. If I would have had a new felony, um, I probably would have got a life sentence. Uh, but I broke my parole and, uh, with a dirty drug screen, and 
They sent me back, and this was like the mid-80s. And by this time, they had the handy-dandy treatment centers. And when I speak in Alabama, I always tell people, you know, if you don't get it here in AA, Department of Corrections will give you treatment. Free treatment. Long treatment, you know. And you will finish it, or you won't get out. And so when I went back this time, uh, believe it or not, they recommended that I needed to go through this treatment center. And, uh, and I did. And a lot of things happened for me in this treatment. Uh, I'm going to share just a couple of things. Um, one night my counselor told me uh, to go to the front gate and meet the speaker. We had speakers that came in every week and talked to our little drug class in the prison. And uh, so I went up to the front gate to meet the speaker, and it was... Um, the girl I took my first drink with. And she had uh, been sober a year and uh, was coming up there to, to carry the message to us. And she came in and told her goofy little story. And she gets mad when I say that. <laughs> She's my sponsor today. She really doesn't. <laughs> but I mean, she was in there talking about her dog, Booger, and all this. And I can remember her little eyes were just glistening. And I thought, man, they got some good dope going on since I've been locked up. And she was talking about she was sober, and I was like, yeah, right. But you know, she planted a seed for me, and I hear a lot of people say they don't go into jails, and they don't go into prison, because they don't have anything to share. They've never been to jail. I'm going to tell you, I'm glad this lady didn't think that way. Because she she had never been to jail, she had never been to prison. But she was willing to come up there that night and carry the message to me. And she planted the seed. Because... I knew how she drank when we were kids. We drank alcoholically then. And uh, we went our separate ways. I hadn't seen her in 11 years until she came up there to So uh, if you get the opportunity to go behind the walls, go. you never know who you're going to see in there. Um, so anyway, a lot of things. Uh, another speaker I want to mention uh, that came up there that's real special to me today, uh, a friend of mine, Joe, he rode his Harley up there and came up there. He had long hair. You know, had his leathers on, and I thought, man, there ain't no way you can ride a Harley and not at least smoke pot. Come on. Oh, Joe told a story, and, and I always sat on the back row on my throne of content every meeting, and we got to ask the speaker's question, and I always asked him the same question, every, every speaker the same question with a attitude. Just what did you do for fun? <laughs> And those AA speakers, they would start trying to tell me. Oh, they wanted me to get it. They'd say, well, we go to meetings. Um, we go bowling. Uh, we go out to eat. Uh, we um, go to conventions. And I'm sitting in there thinking, you know, should I just blow my brains out or can I stand that much fun? And oh, they try so hard. So old Joe was up there that night, you know, and I raised my hand asking the same question. Just what do you do for fun? And I'll never forget, he looked back at me and he said, I tell you this, honey, I guarantee you I'm having a hell of a lot more fun than you're having sitting in this penitentiary. <laughs> and I've never forgot that. And I remember that today with newcomers. We are wasting our breath trying to tell newcomers what we do for fun. I don't even try. I tell them. You're not going to believe this, but one day, going to jail, losing your kids, making your mama cry, peeing your pants, throwing up on yourself, sleeping in abandoned houses, one day, 
Oh, that's not going to be fun. I know it's hard to believe right now. I know it's hard to believe it. You'll just hang in there. You'll just hang in there one day. Your perceptions of fun will change. And they're just sitting there looking at me like, what? You know. So it was a lesson that I still learned. So anyway, a lot of good speakers and, and a great treatment program there, but I still had too many yeah buts. You ever had the yeah but? They said, you have to go to meetings, you need to go to meetings first night, you need to go to meetings every day, you need to get a sponsor, all the things that they suggest. And I'd say, I, I'll go to meetings, but I don't think I need one every night, come on. And I'll go to meetings, but I'm not going that first night, I get out of prison, I got something else to do that night. And I'll get a sponsor, but she's had to have been to prison at least twice. And everything they said, it was, yeah, but. So they let me out, and I graduated with honors from this uh, Wings program in the Tutwiler prison. And they let me out, and I didn't go to a meeting the first night. I was drunk within 48 hours. Within five months, I was sent to my parole officer's office, and they said, you're going back. You're going back. And for the first time in my life, I broke down and just started crying. And today I know this was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I asked this parole officer, I said, please don't send me back to that place. I know what I needed to do, I just didn't do it. If you'll just give me a chance. Now, the reason I know this was God working, because this was the meanest parole officer I'd ever had. He wore a hearing aid, he turned it up and down, up and down while you were in the office. And he looked at me, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 48 hours to get yourself some. And I called my counselor at that prison and uh, asked her to help me. And she got me in a detox center in Sylacauga, Alabama, at a place called Caradell Lodge. And this is what happened to me as I remember it. I, I went to that lodge and I was sitting out in this field and I was sitting on a picnic table. And it was a really pretty place. And I just started crying and I couldn't stop crying. And I reached out to this God that I had no understanding with all the desperation in me, and I asked for help. You know, I said, if I can't live out here on the street, and if I can't stay sober, and i got to continue living the way I'm living, then just help me end it all. You know, the book talks about that jumping off the road. You know, I couldn't imagine life without alcohol. couldn't imagine life without it. And I was at the jumping off place, and I wished for the healing. And what happened to me that day, I know, was a spiritual experience. I mean, it wasn't a burning bush, and it wasn't a bowl of lightning, but it was like my mind opened up this much. And the next thought was, AA cannot be as bad as the way you believe. Now, that may not sound very spiritual to you, but if you would have asked me the day before that about AA, I was saying, hey, it's all right, it's great. You know, it's a bunch of old men, and they sit around, talk about fishing, and drink coffee, and hell, they're too old to drink. You know, when I get that old, I'll quit too, you know. And just had this negative, grim view about Alcoholics Anonymous, and had never been. The only AA I'd ever been to was in that prison. So, to me, that next thought, AA, was like the last house on the block. It's pretty spiritual. You know, the book talks about, um, in the doctor's opinion, where we have to have that vital spiritual experience and where that set of ideas and emotions that were guiding us, we have to have that 
you know, rearrangement, that emotional rearrangement. And that's kind of what happened to me that day. Because something took over, and my thought process was, maybe AA will work. Now, that's pretty spiritual. Whatever happened to every one of us in AA, the day that we gave it up and gave AA a shot, you know, because for me, I could always find that another angle. <laughs> i got to be able to maybe light beer only, you know. I mean, it was always something. There's got to be an angle. And I surrendered that day. And, you know, I went through the little detox, and um, when they let me out, I did just what they've always told me to do. I went to a meeting the first day. I went to meetings every day. And, um, you know, I started studying celibate. And I'll always be so grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous for loving me unconditionally. Because when I got to AA, I was pretty sick. Um, most of us are. I was borderline institutionalized. I was a legend in my own mind. I, I walked around with chains, big brogans, a switchblade this long, and looked like an idiot, you know? And I would be, I would get mad at the old timers and be up in the coffee room saying, I'll carve my initials in their head. Think about that. You know, I think about it now, it's embarrassing, really. And, uh, and they say, just keep coming back. And, uh, <laughs> And I used to think y'all were being so nice to me. And then somewhere along the line, I realized, you know how when there's the real sick ones that come in, and we go, just keep coming back. And I realized that's what they were doing to me. So then when they tell me to keep coming back, I'd want to fight them. I'd be like, no, you keep coming back and be honest in their face, you know. So embarrassing. You know, I had a lot of trouble getting a sponsor. You know, they weren't like lined up. Uh, sponsor me and my switchblade. You know, women come in now and we're like vultures all over. Here's my number. Call me, call me. They weren't doing that. I didn't have any numbers, you know. And, uh, but I love thinking back to the first days in AA. And, um, you know, we do talk our own talk in here. And, and I love to watch newcomers when they come in and sit and look at us. Because I remember about the third or fourth meeting and all that, I was like, they just read all that stuff last night, you know. <laughs> And then one night when I'm said the first drink gets you drunk. And I went, what in the hell was y'all drinking? You know, moonshine? And I, there was an old timer, you know, if you came in and you were kind of young, he'd always say, I spilt more on my tie than you ever drank. You remember the old timer saying that? And I said, well, you ought not to spill so much. You might have got here sooner with your old self, you know. And, you know, my sponsor wouldn't let me do any service at district or area level for five years, you know, because I didn't argue well. I would go to the business meetings and uh, didn't know anything about traditions, but I didn't argue well. And, you know, I'm right. And so I'd be in the business meeting, kicking tables, wanting to fight them over $2 or uh, whatever, the, you know, our issues, uh, coffee funds and being there wanting to pull my knife and kill somebody over it. <laughs> it was crazy. But, you know, I'll, I'll always be so grateful. And, and there was this one lady that finally took me on it and sponsored me, and her name was Alice. And, and I'll always be so grateful to her for teaching me about the home group and loving AA and loving service work. And, you know, 
looking at the steps, and I'm not going to stand up here and do a step seminar, but when I kind of look at, you know, these last years uh, of my life, I kind of look at it in the phases of working the 12 steps, and I had to drink every drop that I had to drink, you know, to work that first step. Uh, you know, I had to beat my head, uh, beat me into a state of reasonable reasonableness as the book talks about. But when I think about step two, I think about this little sponsor. And, you know, I'd have a problem a minute. You know how we are when we're new. And I'd call her up, wah, 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 whatever the problem was that day. And she'd say, okay, meet me at the group. I'd say, okay, she's going to loan me the $50, whatever I need, you know. And we'd get over to the AA club, and she would hand me the toilet scrubber and the comic. And I'd be back there scrubbing those toilets thinking, does she know who I am? You know? And, and what does this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with getting sober? So when I think of step two, I think about coming to believe in the power of suggestion. Coming to believe in anything more powerful than me. And I think about those toilets. Cleaning those toilets, not having a clue what it had to do with staying sober. She told me to go to meet every night. I went. Didn't think I needed it. She told me to pray in the morning, pray at night. Didn't know if I really believed it. But I took those suggestions and I started staying sober. You know, I tried that on the girls I sponsor today. They'll call me up. We ain't wearing one. I said, meet me at the group. And I'll hand them that toilet scrubber and call them. <laughs> They'll be like, I don't think so. I got my nails done today. I mean, you know, it's a lot different trying to work with some of these girls. <laughs> and I started working the steps with this lady. I started working the steps, and um, you know, I worked the third step with her, just like the book said. And I took this step um, on my knees with my sponsor, and I didn't, you know, feel no, you know, bold of lightning. It's only looking back in hindsight, that I started seeing the power. When I made that decision to turn my will in my life over here, God's understood. Didn't have a clue what it meant, what I was doing. You know, looking back where God started working in my life, without my permission, I might add, you know, things started happening. Things started changing. And I'll tell you one little story, and, and I can tell you a lot, but of things that started happening in my life. Um, you know, I'd never worked and uh, you guys told me in AA, you know, Tammy, won't you get a job? You're a bum. And, uh, you know, I've been sober about nine months, and I was sitting at home watching soap operas, and a commercial came on that said, adults, go back to college. And on the bottom of it, it said, financial aid available. Now, I'm an old con, and I know that means you can get some money, you know, that financial aid money. And so I said, I'm going down there and get some I mean, now don't forget, I'm an eighth grade dropout. I went down to school, and I, there's people everywhere and tables everywhere, and I went to the first table, and I said, I want to see if I get some of that financial aid money. And they said, okay, take this paper and this paper and go to the next table. I went to the next one, said the same thing. They sent me about four tables. I'm at the last table, and I said, I just want to see if I get some of the financial aid money that was on the commercial. And that lady said, okay. Well, won't you go ahead and sign up for one class and we'll get your financial aid money next week? And I'm just standing there looking at her and she said, How about history? And 
and you came and do with them as you can, and do with me and do with me as you can, and take away the details that stand in the way of my usefulness to you and my family. See, I wasn't useful. Uh, rolling around the parking lot at AA Biden is not very useful. Didn't any women ask me to sponsor them to tell they were scared to death of me. They wouldn't even talk to me. And the, the result of that, because see, if I work on my own defects, if I'm working on anger, that's how we're going to work on it. We're going to roll around a little bit. And at this point, I knew I had to have God's help, you know, to help each other when you start taking some of these defects. Um, talk about steps eight and nine a minute. I don't know about you, but my first go around with the steps, I said, I don't really have that many of them. Because, see, this is the delusion I lived in. See if it sounds familiar. I'm only hurting me. Just let me drink, leave me alone, I'm only hurting me. Have we ever said it? And it was a delusion that I lived in. That's how I could believe I would hurt anybody. Because let me tell you about my mother. My mother was there with me through every bit of that. And I can remember standing in front of that judge. And him sent it to me for 10 years in the penitentiary. And I would look at him with all the hate that it was. And I could hear my mom crying. Is that you know, I have a grandmother who's 90 years old, and I'm her only granddaughter. She works at the ground I walk on. I always have One day I was in her house, robbing her house, and my house was And I knocked the table over, and her family Bible fell off. A little piece of the paper came out of that Bible. And I picked them up, picked them up, and started reading. And every one of them had courage to her. Because her preacher told her she couldn't her favorite brother's daughter in here. But I'm only her sister. You know, my mother came up to that prison every Sunday for almost eight years. And she cried and cried and cried and cried. You know, I have one brother, one real brother, my father, I have about seven half brothers and sisters and got around quite a bit. And um <laughs> have one little brother, you know, and you know how it is when we're the big sister and uh when my grandfather died he left my brother all this stuff and he didn't have any money, he left him his coins and nice collections and stuff like that. And then my alcoholism I sold everything I sold it probably for a bottle of you know, but I'm only hurt me. You know, somebody come up to me one time after I shared, and they said, you know, Tammy, you need to let the past go and not live in the pain. And I said, oh, but this isn't pain when I talk about my family. It's true. And I don't have to live like that anymore and be that person. Because as a result of the 12 steps, making those amends gave me the opportunity to go back. And the best I could, I lived in my family. You know, today I'm a dog. <laughs> I'm a granddaughter, you know, I'm a sister, and that's what AA meant to me, um, and my family. You know, my mom, um, we have a great relationship since I've been sober. Her and her husband bought a bar. Now, that's a resentment in its own, you know. <laughs> Why can't they have a bar back then, you know? <laughs> my brother, you know, he's went back to law school as an attorney, another resentment, you know? Uh, my dad's back in my life and uh, has been uh, halfway straight for about 10 years, and that's a blessing to have him back. 
Um, so, you know, I, I was staying sober and I was working with Jeff and I told y'all this school and I, you know, uh, you guys told me I need to get a job, go to work. And I, you know, I lived in this delusion also. Nobody's gonna hire me. I said, I'll show y'all. So I went out and put applications in anywhere that I knew they wouldn't hire me, like banks, corporate offices, uh, Alabama State of Revenue, and, you know, it's say, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And I'd say, oh, you yeah, additional pages attached, you know. <laughs> and would you believe that the state of Alabama Department of Revenue gave me a job? I mean, that's a, that tells you a lot about our state on it. So I was working, I was going to school, you know, and this was the first job I'd ever had. I'd never worked. The only job I'd ever had was in that prison, and they made me work. And uh, those little ladies I worked with, they loved me to death. You know, when they hired me, they said, Tammy, you don't need to tell everybody your business. We know that's good. And so I never told all these little ladies. But every day we'd walk to the parking lot together, and the inmates work at the state building down there, and they ride in a big bus. And every afternoon as we were walking, the big blue bus would come around, and all those inmates would go, Hey, <laughs> and they never asked, and I never told them. And, uh, and you know, when I, uh, you know, I was in school, and when I graduated, and I and I got another job, they threw me a party. Those little ladies cried because I was leaving. You know, and I'd never worked a job in my life, and they they really loved me that day. Um. You know, I graduated in 96 with my bachelor's degree, and I walked that night, and, you know, you want to know what AA does for the families, I said, I walked that night, not for me, and that stupid thing that hangs in your face and all that, but I did it for my mother, you know, and I can promise you that my mother was the happiest person in that field never. You know, and she gave me a card, and she told me that she was so proud of me. And, you know, I was a good starter, but I wasn't a good finish. And uh, I, I was waiting any minute for her to have pom-poms and be jumping around in there. And, uh, you know, that's what this program's done for my family. Every Sunday I go over to my grandmother's and I eat dinner. And as you can tell, she cooks me good biscuits. And, uh, you know, I couldn't do that in my drinking. You know, and she's 90 years old and God's blessed. She's something else, you know. She drove her car through the farmer's market about two months ago. Threw it. <laughs> Still drives, 90 years old. Told her her car and bought a brand new one. So if you're ever in Montgomery and you see a silver Buick, run. Go. <laughs> you know, some of the blessings, though, um, after I finished school, I went to work as a social worker with family services. And, um, during this time, uh, you know, in my first couple of years of sobriety, I had the opportunity to go back in that prison and take AA and go in there and tell them ladies that there's another way and you don't have to live like this. And you know, one of the nicest things ever said about me was said right there at that prison. You know, I listened to a lot of speakers and Johnny Ace is one of my heroes and Probably a lot of you heard Johnny from California, and he talked about when he was in prison how dedicated and committed those AA people were. And when he was in prison, they were there every week, no matter what. And he said one night there was a blizzard, and the roads were closed for 15 miles. And he was standing out there with the guards, and the guards said, Johnny, they're not coming. 
The roses closed, John said, oh, yeah, the night actually called the AA. And he said a few minutes later, they heard a bell, and there came the AA man on the porch this way to bring that AA man. And I used to just get chill pumps and think, oh, how dedicated he is. Well, one night after I'd been taking the meat up to prison for a couple of years, never missed a night, um, there was a tornado that hit uh, like five miles from the prison. And the inmate was standing out there waiting on me that shared me. And the guard said, Tammy's not going to be here. And that inmate looked at her and said, yes, Tammy will be here. she believed in my dedication and my commitment to alcoholics and homeless that day, the same person that my mother didn't know if I was either on birthdays or Christmas or Easter, but this lady believed in my commitment to alcoholics and homeless that day. Sure enough, here I came. You know, my umbrella turned inside out. I mean, it was a tornado, you know. And um, so we, I had 200 inmates, and we were in the shower for the tornado drill. And I had a big book, and we had a meeting. A lot of them weren't happy about it, but we had a meeting. And, uh, so I, I took the, you know, the message up there, and I always remembered that little lady that brought that message up there. And even though I wasn't ready for it, I remembered her commitment and her dedication to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you, she went on to the big meeting in the sky, but just to share with you her love for AA, the last time I saw her, she was in a nursing home and she had lung cancer. She had started an AA meeting in the nursing home. <laughs> and I was the speaker, and there was little wheelchairs lying in a circle all around her. That's her commitment, and that's the way she has with dignity. You know, and that same commitment to alcoholism. So, so many things were happening, and, you know, I, I was working as a social worker, and that was stressful, and, you know, they called me, and they wanted me to come for an interview at that prison as a counselor, and I said, I don't know about that, but, you know, I said, I'll come for the interview, and they offered me a job, so I went to work at that same prison. I said, you know, God's got a sense of humor. I'm going to do a life sentence before it's over, you know. <laughs> and I went to work in that prison and worked there for three years, and what a blessing. Um, it just treatment wasn't for me. The treatment field just wasn't my deal, and uh, so I started praying. You know, God, it's the faith of my own God. You know, I need help here. And literally, this job I have now um, just fell in my lap, and I'm back with Family Services, and I'm a trainer, and I train social workers about alcoholism and about the family dynamics, and what do they need it? You know, and uh, you know the the biggest thing about my sobriety today is that big hole that's in my head that only alcohol and drugs could even touch is good. And you know, I do have a God of my own understanding. And I never thought that was possible. You know, my grandmother says, and thank God is just like this, she's a Southern Baptist, so y'all can listen to this. She says, when you die and you meet your maker, there's going to be one question that you and that question is going to be, how well have you served me? And if that's the question, those of us that are in the middle of AA, we're going to be okay. Because as a result of the 12 steps, today, I do feel like I'm useful, and that I have a purpose, and that I can serve God in this program. What a, what a deal. What a deal. You know, I continue to share this message. Um, I 
I could just go on and on about the blessings, the blessings, the blessings. I mean, I have a car with a roof. Okay, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm blessed. Uh, you guys told me to get a party. So I did. I went down. I didn't know what it had to do with anything, and I applied for a party. They told me I needed one of the states in Georgia, too. So now I have two full parties. You know, you told me to do that. I remember I voted in the, the last election. And I was so excited. The vote is a privilege. And I was down there just excited. And people were looking at me like, maybe this is not fun. You know? And like, where have you been all your life? And, uh, you know, and I, and I want to tell you one story, and I know my time's up about carrying this message, and I, and I love AA. I mean, I've been GSR, I'm the district treatment rep now, and, but about sponsorship and about full circle, how things come back to full circle. You know, when I was growing up, my mom used to say, when you grow up and have kids, they're going to put you through everything you put them through. Did your mom ever tell you that? Well, I don't have kids, but sponsorship. I'm sitting out there about six months ago, and I'm sponsoring this lady in the cover maybe two months, right out of prison. Now they bust a bag, one of the pants all bags, and it's got a fair braid and a big switch blade. She comes out there and she said, if she looks at me one more time than that meeting, I'm going to slice her throat. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, don't cut her. Let's pray. Let's hold my hand. Let's pray. You know? <laughs> Full circle, you know, full circle. <laughs> AA has blessed me over and over. You know, I want to thank you guys for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to the weekend. I know you're in a tree. I've heard um, a cliff, and uh, he'll straighten all this up tomorrow night. He always does. Um, I want to end with a prayer that's real special to me. And, um, one of my teachers used to say this prayer a lot. God, I know I'm not what I should be. God, I know I'm not what I should be. But thank you, God, I'm not what I used to be. Thank you all so much for having me.